Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What does Jesus's mission look like here? What's his mission here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What does Jesus's mission look like here? What is Jesus's mission here? How do I know what Jesus's mission is? We are in the New Testament book of Acts. And as we've been journeying through the book of Acts, uh, we've been following this guy named Paul who goes on you know, these missionary journeys, these church planting journeys. And he starts churches in different places. And each time after he leaves an area for the final time in the, the narrative of Acts, we take a break if he's written a letter back to that church and say, what did he write to them? Well, today we're gonna to look, the last time we were in Acts, Paul left Ephesus. And uh, so now we're gonna look at the letter he wrote to that church six years later after he left. And so that's what we're gonna to do today. We're gonna to look at a, a whole book of the Bible, the book of, Ephesus, of Ephesians, and uh, we're gonna move fast. But with that, let me pray. And then we're gonna be in the New Testament book of Ephesians. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thanks for your grace to us, your kindness and your goodness. Holy Spirit, I, I thank you for your word, for writing it down and uh, revealing yourself to us. I pray that today, Holy Spirit, you'd help me as I teach your word. Help all of us to understand the things you've written and to apply it to our lives so that it changes the way we think and the way we live and uh, give us hope and joy and encouragement for the future. Help us today, I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, today, as you know, is... Um, uh, Super Bowl Sunday. And so because of that, everybody's kind of got their jersey on, or a handful of us do. And uh, I didn't have a jersey, at least not one that fit me anymore. So I wore uh, one of my Iowa State sweatshirts. I went to Iowa State and uh, grew up in Iowa. And just so you know, if you didn't know, um, Iowa State's kind of taken over. I mean, one of the starting quarterbacks today, do you know where he played? Brock Purdy? Iowa State. You know, the leader right now in the clubhouse in the NBA to be NBA MVP, season MVP, plays for the Pacers, Tyrese Halliburton, Iowa State. The number, the, the first place team in the Big 12, the best basketball conference in college basketball. Do you know who's in first place right now? Iowa State. Iowa State. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate that. We're taking over either, so here's one of the things, either we're taking over or all of this, I'm not sure what to do with it. It probably means Jesus is just coming back really, really soon. <laughs> but you can root for Brock Purdy tonight. My, my son, actually, today, he's running around with the jersey he got from his uncle, a Brock Purdy jersey for Christmas. You see him this morning. But, you know, Iowa State's nickname, the Cyclones, is kind of unique in, in all of Division I sports. There's the, they're the only Cyclones, and they got it because they beat Northwestern so bad uh, over 100 years ago that the Chicago Tribune had this headline, they were struck by a cyclone. There had been a bunch of tornadoes and cyclones that had devastated Iowa that summer. And so that nickname stuck. And so it made me think, like what are, 
especially today, we're all wearing different jerseys and things. And by the way, my favorite by far is Harold the Usher uh, from Notre Dame. Harold, you look awesome. It's fantastic. But I thought, what are some of the most unique nicknames in college athletics? So I went on a little hunt. I found uh, Arkansas Tech, the Arkansas Tech Wonder Boys. Have you heard of them? <laughs> They're called the Wonder Boys. The women, though, are called the Golden Sons, so they don't have to be the Wonder Boys, at least. That's good. How about uh, UC Santa Cruz? Have you heard of them? <laughs> the Banana Slugs. Does that strike fear in your heart? Like, we got to play the Banana Slugs today. Oh, man, it's going to be rough. Now, if you, you weren't sure, like, you know, when you're naming your team way back in the day, you're not sure what to do, you could be like a university in St. Louis called Webster that just made up a name. They're the Webster Gorlocks. And uh, it's just made up, but according to their website, a Gorlock has the paws of a cheetah, the horns of a buffalo, and the face of a St. Bernard. Not sure how you get there, but that's what they got. Or maybe you'd root for, you know, large saltwater clams like the Evergreen State College Geoducks. Or uh, maybe the oddest of all, the North Carolina uh, College of Arts, University of North Carolina College of Arts, um, the Fighting Pickles. I don't even know what to do with that. But it kind of begs the question, kind of begs, who are you? Who are you? I mean, maybe, maybe like, what's your team? That might be a question, you know? Are you a Hoosier or a Boilermaker or a Cyclone? Or... But, but maybe let's go a little more specific to our topic today. Who are you? If you're a follower of Jesus, who are you? What's your nickname? What would people call you? You know, um, maybe your answer would be, if you're a follower of Jesus, you might say, well, I'm a Christian. That'd be a good name, good nickname. It's one the Bible uses for Christians. So I, I kind of started looking like, in the Bible, what, what are the nicknames the Bible gives those who follow Jesus? Well, the first one I just mentioned, Christian. Do you know of the over 31,000 verses in the Bible, of the nearly 8,000 8, verses in the New Testament, do you know how many times followers of Jesus are called Christians? Three. Only three times. So what does the Bible call us? Well, a common phrase is to say that we are in Christ. We're gonna see that in our text in Ephesians this morning. It says that, it says that we're in Christ over 200 times. Over 200 times are in Christ, in Jesus, in him, in the beloved. Another term that has those same numbers is, is a disciple. Somebody who's growing to become like their teacher, to become like Jesus. In fact, that's because of being disciples, that's why we're called Christians, Christians, little Christs. And then another one that comes up often is the term saint. You know, um, Saint shows up 61 times in the New Testament. That's what the Bible nicknames those who follow Jesus. And you might be thinking, ah, I'm no saint. <laughs> I'm me. Well, um, if you've trusted Jesus, if you've repented of your sin and become a follower of his, you are a saint. You are. 
In fact, you're called that 20 times more often than you're called a Christian. Well, today in the New Testament book of Ephesians, we're gonna look at what Paul writes to the church there. And one of the things we're gonna see is that Ephesians is all about who you are and whose you are. That's what Ephesians is, is all about. And as we begin, Ephesians, if you got your Bible, you can open up there. Ephesians is first about you in Christ. If you're not familiar with your Bible or if you got an app, you can use that too, but um, it's towards the back. And if you find Galatians or Philippians or Colossians, you're really close, just think, go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. It's kind of a little memory trick for you to know the order. But friend, if, if you've repented of your sin and turned to faith in Jesus, well, let's look at what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. Because he would write to us in the same way. He says, Paul, this is, by the way, how they wrote letters. We write like, dear so-and-so. They would start off with who was writing. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Notice what he calls them. He doesn't say to the Christians in Ephesus. He says, the saints. The saints. Those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. There's that in Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, if you've repented of your sin, you are a saint. And what's happening, what Paul's gonna write about here is that once you're in Christ, if you become a Christian, see, I I grew up in a church where um, it was kind of like if you went to church, you were a Christian. If you did enough good things, eh, you were a Christian. The Bible says something totally different. The Bible says you actually have to put your faith in Christ, repent, which means to turn, Turn to him in faith, and that makes you a Christian, not anything you do other than faith. And and when you do that, you become a saint. And and then what Paul's going to write about in this letter is he's going to tell them what's happening when you're in Christ is God is restoring you back into the the perfect image he's created you as and with. In fact, this idea, this was God's plan from the very beginning, this whole idea of, of an identity. And it comes up from this term imago dei. Right, that's a, that's a kind of churchy sounding word, isn't it? Imago dei means image of God. It's a Latin term. And Christians have used it for centuries to describe something that shows up right away in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter one, the image of God in humanity. It's, it's a term that's been used to refer to our likeness, that we're like God. And, and the image of God in us is the one thing that sets humanity apart from every other thing God created. It means you and I are his crown jewel of all creation. We're the only things in all creation that bear his image, that bear his likeness. And every human being since the very beginning has borne the image of God from the moment of conception to the grave Throughout all eternity, we bear the image of God. That's where your worth and dignity and value is found. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, no matter your intellect, no matter your age, no matter the color of your skin, no matter your family, you have value and dignity and worth to God. He loves you because you bear his image. 
if you don't believe me, and by the way, that's why we always say as a church, all people matter. All people matter because they matter to God and bear his image. And it's all rooted back here in Genesis chapter one. After God created everything, he looked at creation and said, ah, there's something missing. And so then he says, let us make man in our image, mankind meaning after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Notice this pattern. He starts off with their identity. They're, they're made in his image. And then he talks about their activity, have dominion over all the earth. And he repeats it just in case we might forget it. Verse 27, the very next verse. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Every one of us bear God's image. That's your identity. And then he gives activity. So God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Those of you who like to fish and who like to hunt and have dominion over the fish of the sea and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, you're living out your image bearing. You really are. That's what God told us to do. And that pattern though of of identity and image bearer and then activity is one to keep in mind here as we dive into Ephesians. So let's dive back in. Chapter one, we, we saw this greeting. And then in verse three, we read this. And let me encourage you, as we go through here, we, we mentioned that Ephesians starts first with you in Christ. I would encourage you, I've kind of done this in my Bible, like every time here in Ephesians that you see the phrase in him, in Christ, in Jesus, in the beloved, like to underline it or mark it somehow. And just notice how many times Paul says this. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. There's number one, I should have like a bell that rings each time. In Christ, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Same thing, in in Christ. By the way, let me stop here for a moment. You know, it talks about uh, our adopting, to be adopted to him, into his family as sons. You might look at that and go, what about daughters? Well, keep in mind the context when Paul's writing. He's writing about who we are, our identity. And one of the issues in context in that day is that legally women had very few rights, especially as it related to an inheritance if there was an inheritance in a family, do you know who got it? The sons, not the daughters. So when he says we're all adopted as sons, you know what he's saying? He's saying all of us, no matter who you are, if you've trusted Christ, male, female, everyone in between, we're adopted as sons. We get the inheritance. We get the spiritual blessings in Christ. And that's what he's, he's saying here. As sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, which is in Christ. Verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us 
in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. See, in him you also, when you heard the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. It's a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We're gonna be reading a lot of scripture today just to prepare you for that and kind of read through what Paul wrote. But what he's saying here is that when you trust Christ, theologically, here's what happens. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes and literally lives in you. We were singing earlier, Christ in me. The Holy Spirit lives in you. And what Paul's saying is that when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit, when you're in Christ, is the guarantee of your salvation. He's the guarantee that you belong to him. Have you ever bought a house? Some of you have. When you buy a house, you make an offer, and then the next thing you do, you have to put down something. Do you know what it is? Some earnest money. And the earnest money says, hey, I'm agreeing, I'm, I'm locked in here, I'm gonna follow through and see this through, you know, to purchase this house, and if I don't, well then, I guess you get my earnest money, whether it's 500 bucks or 5,000, whatever it is. What Paul's saying here is that the Holy Spirit is God's earnest money to complete what he started in you when you trust him. And if you think about it in that way, if he's the guarantee of our salvation yet to come, it'd be like God saying, well, if this doesn't happen, then I guess I forfeit the spirit, which is not remotely possible. So you are so safe in Christ if you've trusted him. See, Paul's building into our identity. He's saying, this is who we are in Christ. He's talking about identity. By identity, here's what we mean, you know, um, a team has an identity, right? That's why you wear a jersey, things like that. But in an identity, it's, it's who you are. It's who you are individually, but it's also who we are as God's people. It's who we are. Theologically, this is called ontology. It's just the, the nature of being. And uh, Paul starts to unpack all these things in the next chapter. So let's keep reading in chapter two. He starts off uh, with some statements of identity. He says, you were dead. Notice he starts past tense. He's writing to people who've trusted Christ. He's writing to the saints. And he's saying, you were, you are dead. You are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Oh, the, the prince of the power of the air is the enemy. That's Satan. And that Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. Like you're either following Jesus or ultimately you're, you're following the enemy. And he's saying all of us at one point, that's who we were. We were following the enemy. Uh, among whom, by the way, look at this, like the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, 
It's like, that's who every one of us in this room either are or were. If you've trusted Christ, it's who you were. It's not who you are anymore. And we were all there, living out the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of mind and body. And we were by nature, boy, look at this description. We were children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. See, God is a perfect, holy God. And, and if he's perfect and he's perfectly just, he, he has to deal with sin and evil, doesn't he? And he does that with his wrath. Now he withholds his wrath as patience that all would turn to him in faith. But we start by nature, children of, of wrath. We deserve it. I deserve it because of my sin. And then in the next verse, there were two of the best words in the entire Bible. They're two of my favorite. <laughs> but God. See, uh, you were a child of wrath. You were destined for God's wrath. But God. But God. Being rich in mercy. By the way, that phrase, rich in something, only shows up one time in the Bible right here, rich in mercy. It talks about the riches of his grace and other things, but the only time it really says God is rich in, it's right here, rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And it's by grace that you and I have been saved. Notice when we were dead, Christ came to give us life. We're going to see that represented in baptism here in a little while. You know, Jesus wasn't sent just to mend wounded people. That's just part of why he was sent, but it's not the reason. He, he wasn't sent just to wake sleepy people. He, he wasn't sent just to advise confused people or inspire bored people or spur on lazy people or educate ignorant people. You know why Jesus was sent? to raise dead people. That's why he came. And all of us, apart from Christ, and before Christ, were dead. <laughs> and then verse six tells us, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's curious, this is like, this is past tense. He, he raised us up already. He seated us with him. That, that you're seated, if you're a follower of Jesus, your identity, now you're, you're, you're a saint. You're seated with Christ. Mm -hmm. Paul says, uh, right now we're seated with Christ in heaven. That means that if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, you're as invincible as he is, in a sense. A Puritan by the name of uh, Richard Sibbs writes this. He said, uh, Whatsoever Christ is freed from, then I am freed from it. It can no more hurt me than it can hurt him now in heaven. And for God to de-resurrect you, to bring his mercy to an end, Jesus Christ himself would have to be sucked down out of heaven and put back into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. You're that safe if you're in Christ. Why does he do this? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ. Friends, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This isn't your own doing. It's the gift of God. 
See, sometimes we, we think like if I do enough good things, God will love me, he'll forgive me. You know, maybe you hear that kind of in our culture, like, ah, I was a pretty good person, especially compared to them. Like, when we get to the end, I think God's going to kind of weigh it out, and I'm going to be okay. Paul's like, ah, no, you won't. See, it's by grace, which is undeserved favor. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. Unearned favor that we're saved. It's not a result of works, no matter how good you might be, so that no one may boast. It, Paul later writes to Titus that we're saved because of his righteousness, Jesus' righteousness, not our own. For we're his workmanship, his poema, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And from here, Paul goes on and he talks about our, our shared identity of all of us, that, that we would walk in, in unity together, that all of us are, are his. <laughs> And it's who you are, it's who we are, that we're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. And it's why in uh, chapter three, verse 14, uh, Paul, Paul prays this then, that we'd have strength to live it out. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Mm -hmm. You might hear all this stuff, right? And you know, in chapter one, we just kept reading how we're in him. Chapter two, we read how he forgives us and he raises dead people. And here, you know, he's talking about our strength and power in Christ. And like, I don't know. I mean, I, the one part I resonate, Josh, is like the beginning of chapter two. <laughs> like dead in my sin. Like dead in my trespasses. Like really jacked up. Yeah, I kind of relate, I relate to that. But all this other stuff, I mean, really? Like he would change me, accept me, and do that in me and with me? I think Paul maybe had you in mind when he writes the last two verses of chapter three, excuse me, when he says this, now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, the Holy Spirit. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. He's like, he can do it and he will do it. And anyone who would turn to him can be saved. See, these first three chapters of Ephesians are all about our identity. It's all about uh, you in Christ, me in Christ. And then the second half of Ephesians is all about Christ in you. Ephesians is kind of neat that way. It just divides like straight down the middle. First three chapters are identity. The next three chapters are whose we are and how to live it out. It's our activity. It's our activity. 
If our identity is, is who we are, our, identity, our, our activity is what you do, what we do, how we live our lives. Theologically, though, you might call this your economy. And, and Paul says it uh, initially in chapter two, verse 10, that we're created in Christ Jesus, we're made new in him for good works that God prepared beforehand to live that out. But then when you get to chapter four, he really starts unpacking it. And he, he tells us essentially, hey, because of who you are, walk worthy of that, like, like live that out and pursue unity. You ever play on a, I know there are a lot of sports analogies this morning. If you're just not a sports person, I apologize. Uh, but if you've ever played on like an athletic team of any sort, a couple things will happen, you know. You'll probably have a coach at one point that'll say, hey, if you're gonna wear that jersey, if, if you're gonna wear those colors, you, you, we play like this. This is who we are, this is what we do, right? And you walk, you, you better play and live worthy of that uniform because that's who you are, that's who we are. And they might also say, and, and this is us. This isn't just you, this is us. So we wanna pursue unity on our team. I mean, they may not say it like that, but, but that's what they're saying, right? Walk worthy and pursue unity. That, that's exactly what Paul gets into here in chapter four. He, uh, switch kind of flips in this letter and he goes from who you are and who I am to saying how we should walk. He says, I therefore, in light of all that, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Paul's like, walk, live like who you are and then pursue unity with one another. <laughs> and as he goes from here, he starts talking about growing up. He says he gives the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for ministry. And you get to the end of chapter four and he talks about being, um, uh, putting away the old and putting on the new and loving one another. In chapter five, verse one, he says, therefore be imitators of God. Therefore, because of who you are, imitate God. That's who you are. You're a saint. Live it out. And then in chapter six, he, he talks about the armor of God and putting all that on so that God could help you live that out. It's identity in the first half and then activity. And all of that's important as we wrap up and, and head towards baptisms for, for this reason. Friends, we're to live from our identity, not toward it. Live from your identity not toward it. Let me try to explain what I mean by that. Uh, I mentioned in Ephesians, you know, kind of breaks down pretty evenly. You've got the first three chapters are identity. The second three chapters are activity. The first three are, you know, kind of who you are, who we are. The second three are um, what you do, what we do. Now the big question, and, and one of the big questions, whether you realize it or not, that you're actually answering, asking and answering subconsciously all the time in your life is which one of these two comes first? Does identity come first like it does in the book of Ephesians or does your activity come first? Here's what I mean by that. 
If your activity comes first, which by the way is all over the place in our culture, right? It's like, then, then what you're doing is you're always trying to achieve an identity. So my activity says, if I make enough money, I can be like this. If I marry this person, I can have this status. If I get enough likes on my posts on social media, then I'll be loved. In the church, when this happens, it's called religion. And it's this idea that somehow your activity determines your identity. And it says, you know, um, we're glad you're here, but I want you to figure all that out. And if you do, if you get it right and you get it good enough, well, then maybe God will love you and accept you. But jump through the right hoops, do it in the right order, say the prayer the right way. Do you see? It's achieving an identity. And it's, it's just natural. It's what we do. Every one of us, we could point to things in our lives like, yeah, I'm, I've just been striving. I've been trying to achieve that in my life. Well, if you do that spiritually, it's going to end in bankruptcy for you. The opposite is what's actually true. Reality follows the pattern we see here in Ephesians, that your identity determines your activity, that who you think you are and know yourself to be is how you live. Identity precedes activity in such that the gospel, opposite of religion, says no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you, if you turn to faith in Christ, he loves you. Do you remember what we read? Because of the love with which he loved us, while we were dead, made us alive in Christ. And if you would turn to him in faith, not by getting it together, but turn to him in faith, he would make you new. He would save you. He would change you. He would redeem you. All those words are used interchangeably in the Bible. And now, because of who you are in Christ, who he's made you to be, now here's how you live. Now that's your team. You got the jersey. Start living it out. And an identity isn't achieved, it's received. Do you see the difference? And when you understand it that way, that's the gospel. And when you can, can embrace that and know that truth and, and trust Christ with your whole heart, it changes everything. And it gives you grace to live out who you truly are. Not that you're never gonna sin or never gonna mess up. Don't hear that. But you know that even when you mess up, he's still got me and he's, as I turn back to him again, I can keep growing in that identity, living out who I am. And friends, that's the gospel. And that's what Paul writes about here in Ephesians. Now, as we wrap up, I'm gonna pray and uh, we're gonna close. <laughs> and as we do, those who are getting baptized are gonna come up and uh, you're gonna see some baptisms here in a moment. Pastor Dave will talk about that briefly. But you're gonna see that their identity has been changed. And so their desire now is to live out the activity of who God says they are, to walk in newness of life. Hey, let me pray. And then uh, we're gonna witness that. Father, thanks for Jesus.